there's been a, an interesting book written a few years ago called The Invisible Rainbow. And it talks about how, if you look at it, they, this book studies six major pandemics of the last hundred years. And it says there's always, before these pandemics, there's a major shift in the electromagnetic frequency of the Earth. There's a major rollout that takes place. Welcome to this week's The Sea Has Many Voices, everyone. I'm so happy to have my good friend Sean Stone with me. Sean, welcome. Greg Stone, Sean Stone. <laughs> <laughs> my cousin John. No, we're not actually related, full disclosure, but we probably are, maybe back there somewhere, I'm not sure, but. Um, not far enough. Anyway, uh, Sean's a journalist, truth seeker, uh, very creative, adaptive thinker, which has drawn me to him over the years. And we met when you interviewed me for your show on RTTV. Indeed. Uh, and ever since then, we've stayed in contact. So we've always wanted to have this moment to have a conversation in the podcast. And today's the day. Now, I want to jump right into it. Uh, today is the March what, 11th. Mm -hmm. It's right in the middle of the coronavirus thing. We're all thinking about it. And I'd like to uh, contemporalize the show a little bit today about this t at the start. And I've got a guy we're going to call named Dr. Stephen Katona who's from the College of the former president of College of the Atlantic, founder of the Ocean Health Index, and one of the smartest people I know, to talk to us for just a few minutes about the coronavirus and the ocean. And then we're going to go on to some other subject matter. Um, he's expecting us, and hopefully his voice will pick up through my, my miking system. He's up in uh, Bar Arbor, Maine. And I feel that, oh. hey, Steve, it's Greg. And it's Greg and Sean Stone. Sean, meet Steve Katona. Hello, Steve. And we're uh, on tape right now. It's not live, but we're recording uh, yeah. an episode of the podcast. And we want to ask you about the virus, uh, Steve. Oh, yeah. I, know, I know it's not your speciality, but you are one of the most broad-thinking people I know um, who can cross disciplines. And that's what we need today in the world. And I've seen you in the past think about things. And just for a few minutes, what, 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 what's going on? With this virus, um, virus is pretty much rule the world by numbers and everything else. I mean, they're everywhere. They're tiny. And um, the, the only thing they do is replicate themselves. And in order to do that, they have somebody else's cell. Um, and in this case, it's ours, although it may possibly have been pangolins or uh, some other animal civet, who knows. Um, and in general, these things are everywhere. They're probably the most abundant, um, well, you don't even know what to call them. They're not organisms. They're not living. They're that's the funny thing about them, isn't it? They're, it's like, how do, you, how do you describe a virus? It's not a cellular yeah. biology animal. It's a, it's a thing. Yeah, it's a little piece of RNA or DNA. And, and uh, all it does is it has a couple of instructions on how to make itself. And uh, it puts that into the, into the cellular cell factory of whatever the cell invades and um, turns the factory instead of making milk bottles and in the end, that particular cell dies, um, but all the viruses that come out live, and there are lots of them. And so um, they've got to find some other hosts. So 
That's, that's wonderful, basic biology on what a virus is that I appreciate, actually, Steve, and I think our listeners will. Thank you. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, and there's a lot of them in the ocean. Uh, we know that, right? Yeah. They're oh, everywhere. Yes, they are. Yeah, they're everywhere, and, and in fact, they're probably lots of them buried, you know, in the permafrost and uh, under the ocean sediments and pretty much everywhere. Uh, we presume um, that doesn't mean that those buried or um, hidden viruses are necessarily dangerous to us or to anything else. But um, Well, could this coronavirus be a natural virus in the environment that just had a moment of opportunity and took it? Or is it a fabrication through some laboratory? I mean, where did it come from? Uh, well, there is that, um, uh, well, that's a, a, a theory, but I, I think a conspiracy theory. I think it's a natural part of the environment. I think the uh, home is in, in uh, the, the fruit bats. Um, right. You know, they're common in uh, forests all through Asia. So there's viruses out there beyond this one that uh, could inhabit humans. This just is the current one that we're aware of. Oh, for sure. Yeah, the main thing is um, this particular virus, uh, I'm pretty sure it's a naturally occurring thing. And the reason that we haven't seen it before is because um, we've only um, recently invaded the Ah. Uh, you know, we've now we're getting somewhere. Yeah. We push further into forests or into um, areas where animals live and are the natural uh, reservoirs for, for a particular virus. And maybe in perfect harmony with it. You know, it may not cause them very much trouble. They're, uh, they've got antibodies to it, they're exposed to it, they've historically been exposed to it and all that. Um, but every once in a while, uh, one jumps the track to a new host, and in, in sometimes it's to a human host, um, and that's called the zoosynthesis. But we have to use big words. And did, some jump the track. And they can evolve rapidly too, right? During this process, once they get into us, they can begin to make themselves even more adapted to us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. I mean, again, that's—it's not that they're making; it's just happening. This is it's just uh, just a neutral thing, but those viruses that do best in whatever the new environment is, they that virus will um, produce more uh, replicants, more copies of itself than ones that don't do as well. And whatever mutation happened to make that um, change work uh, will will be selected for just by sheer. You, you know, there's a, a, I did work a bit in the area of uh, 
microbial threats in the ocean for people earlier in my career. You may or not remember that, but um, there's a lot of contaminants in the ocean, uh, especially around in human industrial activity, especially sewage activity. And uh, I, was in, I worked in the area of protection against that uh, when I was with the government. And I had a firsthand experience in Thailand after the Boxing Day tsunami. I waited three months and then went in with a team to look at the reef systems and how badly they were damaged after that tsunami. And one thing that I did not think of, I thought of everything else, because I was in charge of the expedition, everybody's health, was the water quality and what it would do to the divers, um, even though I had an earlier history. Because the water was clear as gin, um, all the, the poor people that died were gone, the humanitarian efforts had come to an end, so I felt it was okay for us to come in and look at whether healthy reef systems, our question was, do healthy reef systems protect land and people from big waves and tsunamis? And the answer was yes. But in the process, we looked around and saw quite a bit of interesting things underwater. And halfway through, uh, a couple of my divers started getting these infections um, in their open sores. And I was, I was being a little bit of a hard-nosed expedition leader at first, where I would say, just, you know, come on, man up. Let's, we got to finish our work. What's a little infection? Uh, I'm a doctor. I can cut your leg off right there if you'd like, just above the infection if you'd like, and take care of it. But after all the joking, I realized these guys, were, they were in trouble. And I called Dan, and it turned out it was a very virulent staph infection these guys got. And they got it from the polluted water. And da, me, when I started to think about it, that tsunami came in, and then it flushed right through all those developing country sewage systems, right? And brought it all out into the ocean. And we were picking them up. And I had two people got pretty badly infected and hospitalized. They, fortunately, they lived and they didn't lose any, any um, of their bodies. So the ocean um, does relate to us in this category. It's one thing. The sea has many voices. I like to try to bring us back to the ocean whenever I can. And it's pretty easy because the ocean connects us uh, in so many ways. And um, that's a very helpful summary there, Steve. Sean, do you have any questions this arises for you? From, we have a, one of the world's leading oceanographers, health, ocean health experts here on the line. Uh, no, I have no questions. I just I think when he talks about the virus, it, I always felt like virus is almost like an AI in the sense of it's just sort of this replicating intelligence that doesn't think, you know, doesn't have any consciousness or conception uh, beyond replication, right? Uh, sort of like, you know, the, the worst fear of what an AI is. It just seeks to replicate at any expense, right? It doesn't have any conception of, of consequence or consciousness or conscious awareness beyond... Intention, no the, intention. Yeah, no intentionality beyond this need to uh, to survive. So I just, I feel like it's, it's, it's interesting how like the AI of a virus is basically, we're always dealing with that within our artificial systems, whereas the living being, which is the human, you know, the living system of a human, the immune system, all these things are, are working to, to stave off this, this artificial intelligence. And you can take it to le from the virus level in our, in our body to our entire systems and our societies where it's like this artificial desire to just replicate, you know, doesn't think, doesn't want to be creative or, or, or push anything new. And then it's like the human, the living being actually is what is driving and, thrive, and thriving on creativity and thriving from a heart-based notion of, of care and, and and protection and, and live life beyond pure survival. Yeah. So it's like this this virus instinct, which is a part of humanity, but it's like the worst element of our fear-based 
survival, right? No, survival of the fittest, anything goes to get as long as I survive. That's the viral thinking. And then it's like the human living system that is working against that. It's against entropy. It's saying we can create, we're negentropic. We, we create in face of oh. the entropy of the, of the artificial viral intelligence. That's a good takeaway. The other takeaway I had from what Steve said as well is this is partly a result of us pushing into parts of our environment on the earth that we haven't heretofore been. And I think we've seen this with the Ebola virus was the same uh, origin where we we pushed through our human expansionism into a place where this virus has lived for a long time and bang, we hit it. So it's, there are more out there uh, listeners and we're in the middle of something right now that we don't quite know the extent of it. Everybody pay attention. And uh, we here at the Sea as many voices, it's on our mind. And Steve, um, thank you for joining in on a phone call like this. Appreciate it. I know you've got a busy day. Any final comments for, Sean, me, well, or I, our listeners? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Have, I do have a couple. The first is that um, it's not just pushing into the environment, you know, uh, in a in a master way, but uh, fruit bats are brought to market and eaten by people all through, uh, you know, portions of Asia, and so that's a way that you can come in contact with with a, a virus. And also, there's some. Evidence that pangolins are uh, involved in this, and pangolins have been harvested in recent years for their scales for Chinese medicine. I mean, it's just that absolutely uh, disgusting to me. Um, but if they if they harbor the virus, that's another way that um, it could have escaped. So the wildlife trade is involved in, in this. Uh. Thank you. So we need to pay attention to that. The other thing is that uh, viruses aren't all bad. I mean, scientific <laughs> use of viruses. I love you, Steve. You're so you're so broad-minded. <laughs> well, they're you know they're using them to get it to uh, take uh, uh, DNA into cells as part of the right. way to in, in, you know do some uh-huh. uh, genetic uh, alteration and also. In the ocean, they're probably enormously important in um, transport of, uh, of uh, nutrients and, and materials because as they infect uh, bacterial cells and others in the ocean and, and cause them to break apart their contents, spill out into the water and mm. become available for other organisms to use. And that's probably like your angle here because I, I do believe that humanity and the ocean we share the same fate and everything ultimately comes back to the ocean in my view and right. um, I think you found the angle here uh, that I was looking for on the show so thank you so much Steve uh, you've always been 
such an important part of the oceanographic scientific world, my world, and um, and the show. So appreciate it, and uh, we will have you on our list for the next time. Love to Susie and the kids and everybody else up there, and we'll talk soon. You too. All right, take care. Thank you. Bye. You know, actually, I was interested by um, what Steve was talking about with the coronavirus. I mean, certainly, uh, we've seen the last uh, dozen years or so, we've seen come out of China, we've seen swine flu, uh, uh, SARS, which many people originally, when coronavirus came out, said this is a more benign version of SARS. And it would seem from, such from the actual, you know, death toll compared, you know, the percent of people actually die from this as opposed to infection. It doesn't seem as, as nasty as SARS, but the real problem that I find is that there's been a, an interesting book written a few years ago called The Invisible Rainbow. And it talks about how, if you look at they, this the book, studies six major pandemics in the last hundred years. And it says there's always, before these pandemics, there's a major shift in the electromagnetic frequency of the Earth. There's a major rollout that takes place. Really? Whether it's, yeah, whether it's the installation of new naval uh, radar systems, uh, satellite systems, um, the EMF system, as we know, is constantly changing. And so, I'm sitting here going, well, this is so EMF, interesting. electromagnetic frequency system. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm sitting here going, well, what's going on when Wuhan was the center of the 5G rollout in China? They oh. made the whole city 5G. And we've been assured for the last couple of years, oh, 5G is harmless. And, and yet I talk to people that study you know, radar, they study radio, and they're like, look, it doesn't make sense that the government is poo-pooing this idea of EMFs being so non, so uh, non-lethal and so safe. When we in the '90s, when I was a kid, it was talked about. It wasn't like it was not some strange thing. You would say you don't put the cell phone to your ear. You wouldn't want it that close to your head. It's like a microwave, right? right. And now we have we're being doused with it constantly with our with even more powerful wavelengths, right? As far as the EMFs are concerned, more powerful dosages. We've got cell towers everywhere. The 5G installation increases the amount of cell towers, so they put them on almost every block, basically. That's wow. what the rollout looks like. So you're getting these hot towers that are being set up to broadcast more and more frequency. And your question, and the question then becomes, well, how is that affecting the human immune system, our so ability to... The, for me and our listeners, just tell me, out here, 5G, I mean, we see it on our phone, 4G, LTE, mm -hmm. and all these things. 5G just means more radio energy going through it's, the air? It's a 60 what is it, 60 hertz, it's basically 60 megahertz. It's so basically, it's, it's a millimeter wavelength okay. that, that they say is less, it's less invasive, yeah. but at the same time, you have to remember that actually, they have to create more towers okay. for it because it's- it Carries more information and faster rates and all that. Exactly, this whole okay. notion, it's like we need faster and faster. It's like, do we really? And do so we really need faster at the expense of health and testing? When we've done, they've done the studies on the EMFs and they, they've shown that rats develop tumors, and but they don't want to, Acknowledge that it's affecting human. Oh, and biology. you've drawn a connection to the to the five G testing in this virus. That's interesting. I haven't. I mean, I'm just looking at the map and yeah. just looking at where five G has been rolled out. And I know from just empirical look, you know, evidence that when when I was, you know, when I'm in five G zones and I leave it, my body feels much better, much oh. healthier, more relaxed. When you're when you enter, not just five G. I mean, any EMF, but really five G is more powerful. And so the question is. Are we, at the expense of our health, trying to push for more speed, more technology that we don't necessarily need? I mean, we, we can watch movies and, and download stuff quite well at yeah. 2G and LTE bandwidths, but this idea that we have to be faster without really testing and knowing for sure and, and being, I don't really think that we can trust most of these, you know, yeah. these, 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 um, 
these tests that are going out because when they're saying like, oh, it's been tested and studied, it's like, well, has it really? Long-term effects have not really been well, tested. I don't know about the Chinese government so much, but this actually relates to a previous show where we talked about sound pollution in the ocean. And, you know, for a long time we had these whales washing up on the beach dead. And just prior to that, there was a, 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 a naval experiment with a very loud sound in the ocean having to do with communication with nuclear our nuclear submarine fleet. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of denial and no comment for a long time. Then finally, the Navy stepped up and said, yeah, it is us. And let's, let's work on this and fix it. Right. Um, and I wonder, uh, China is a completely different uh, uh, organism there. But thank you for flagging that. And yeah, and I'm not saying that corona doesn't exist. What I'm simply saying is that it's interesting. You study this book, yeah. does a great job, Invisible Rainbows. It talks about how there are six major pandemics in the last 100 years that do come right after this change in the EMF frequencies as, as far as the, the electromagnetic spectrums, um, you know, broadcasting, right? So we're changing the electromagnetic spectrum each time we're, we're increasing our electric output. We're doing things, you know, obviously, whether it's broadcasting radio to satellite to um, now to the Wi-Fi and to the, you know, the 5G spectrum. It's like we're changing the EMF frequency. That's also changing human biology. It's affecting human biology. We can't put our head in the sand and it pretend it to. doesn't. It and to. so there is a danger if it's affecting the immune system and our immune response when something like this breaks out. I would suggest for people health-wise, try getting away from, from 5G or anything that's like a high EMF frequency zone. Try getting away from that and see how your body gets time to recover, how you feel maybe healthier after a couple of days away from it and you start to get your immune system back. You know, you, you're making me uh, recall and remember an epiphany I had recently where I was looking at a, a shot of the Earth from the, from the space station and it showed the, that it was incredible black space and the colorful Earth and then that thin line which is the atmosphere and it really made me get how we can have the ability to contaminate it because it is so thin mm. relative to everything else in our gases. And then it also made me realize how uniquely suited we are to this planet. You know, I was talking to the, the director of the Goddard Space Flight Center, and I asked him what, their, what were they working on, and their biggest challenge was, how do we get people from Earth to Mars because of all the radiation they have to deal mm -hmm. with and, and all that. And then I got me, and then he went on to talk about how, you know, this just isn't a planet that happens to be convenient for us to live on. This is a planet to which we came from, to mm -hmm. which we are part of. Mm -hmm. The gravity, the, the electromagnetic fields. Yes the radiation, the atmosphere, it's, it's a very intimate uh, organism. Yes. Uh, 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 we're not separate. And when we head out into space, we're at, we have these very fundamental questions now. Are we bringing Earth with us, or are we going to let ourselves adapt or try to adapt to new gravity systems, to new electromagnetic systems, to new atmospheric systems? It's, it's a very... But it... It, it really gave me the sense that we just got to stop messing with that little thin layer of atmosphere when I, when I saw it on that picture. You know, the, going back to the question of the virus, there's some mythology that deals with this idea of, you know, talk about aliens, but like ancient alien invasions, basically, of this virus, essentially, this notion, this feeling of conquer, of needing to conquer and subdue the Earth because that itself is an alien notion. Yeah. It doesn't come from Earth. So there is a real question when it comes to, like, the ancient alien stories of were there alien invaders at, onto this planet at different points that essentially we've ultimately are a hybrid species in some theory, right? The, the human is a hybrid of, of many different things coming together from 
both off-world and on-world, but the fundamental desire to conquer and destroy nature and sort of suppress nature at the, you know, for this, for this need to control the planet and go off-world and whatnot, is that an alien notion, an alien thought compared to the, the, the innate human that's connected to Earth that, as you said, resonates with the frequency of Earth that has a relationship to nature and realizes that we can't escape nature. Right, so it's like there's two vying philosophies here, and maybe it is an alien philosophy in some way. This idea, like we're just coming here using the Earth and moving on, right? Yeah. Trash it and keep going to Mars. And the other philosophy, it's like no, we're sprung of this Earth. We are connected to it deeply at the DNA level, at the soul spirit level. We are connected to it, and we need to be more in harmony with that connection. Well, you know, when you look at any animal species, they have strategies for for survival. And our strategy is quite simple. It's go to an area, use up all the resources, then go to another area. And that's what we've, we've done over the last 200,000 years when it was roughly when Homo sapiens, if yeah. we could go back 200,000 years, we could find people that would look mm -hmm. like us in basic ways. We did that. And then we, but we've run out of places to go now. <laughs> so we're, we're in a conundrum where we're, we either have to go back and restore what we've, what we've depleted, or you just mentioned it when you talked about going to another, another planet. Is that inevitable? Are there any other planets out there that we could live on, I think is, a, is the big question. Um, but I hear all the time stories of organic farmers <clears throat> who actually, they start to uh, replenish the soil. Like literally, when they go back to organic farming techniques, Right, which is not a monoculture, not a monocrop, right? Like they're actually crop rotation going on and they're, they're doing the right things to nourish the soil. It goes from being a depleted soil to being black again. Yeah. And I hear these stories because the earth is designed, it's designed to replenish, it's designed to regenerate. That's why I don't believe that we're going to destroy the earth. I think we'll destroy ourselves more quickly, you know, in the process because ultimately the earth will survive. It is designed. You, you're, you're absolutely right, Sean. It, it is designed to replenish. It's just, to, it's just not designed to replenish in a way that we might want it to. Or that, or well, I'm that, saying it, yeah. it would destroy us, yeah. but it will not, you know, at the end of the day, I don't believe that unless we nuke oh, the place, all, no, there will it's always not, be, yeah, it's not even like we're if we nuke destroy it, it. There mm. will always be life on this earth. Mm -hmm. There'll always be a vibrant life, whether it's a gooey, microscopic slime life, or whether it's uh, what has evolved this vertebrate uh, uh, neural system, the, the earth, it's that, that's its nature. That's its nature. That's its fate. It just doesn't care about us. Yeah. And that's that. And that's the, the key is it doesn't care about us. And I felt that so distinctly when I was in an earthquake, a bad earthquake once, and I was thrown to the ground, and I felt her shaking, and I saw the trees moving and that ground opening up, and I realized, there's no mother earth out there caring about me. Well, I, that's <laughs> that's the Medea hypothesis. I read that that Wait, book. That? I'm not familiar with that. What's the that? Medea hypothesis this is precisely Medea in, uh, in Greek legend. She was the one that murdered her, her children out of rage, right? Because uh, she was Jason's wife and Jason uh, took another younger wife when he got home. And they, they basically their children uh, she murdered because she said, well, you, you're going to scorn me. I'll, I'll kill our children. That's the Medea hypothesis. But I don't agree that they don't, Earth doesn't care about us. I would say that the Earth conscious as a consciousness, right? There's there's living consciousness, yeah. I believe. Yes, and I do believe we're connected to well, it. I've always I always and felt that way too up until that moment. But but that doesn't mean that. Listen, your own father and mother, I'm sure, have yelled and, and at you and done, and they've <laughs> hurt you. And I've hurt, and I mean, our parents have hurt us, right? Yes. Some of some much worse than others, right? That's we right. can't even imagine some things that have done by parents. But our own parents hurt us, 
What's that trauma that they're carrying? So if you're going to traumatize the earth, you know, she will strike back. It doesn't mean that she doesn't love you. I like, I, I I like looking for these patterns and scaling yeah. ideas. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I get it. So she was just, because I, I remember, I do remember, I was lying there on the ground, and the earth was still shaking. It was a really big earthquake. Trees were doing this, and I said, whoa, no one's thinking about me. But uh, maybe, maybe that was my earth mother uh, giving me a little kick or something. You know? Yeah, and he didn't get killed out of it. You know, it was, it's... How do you say? It's like they're. To My me, friends did though. Well, and then, but they're. You know, I don't believe in death. First of all, I would say that. What do you believe nothing, in? Nothing. Nothing. What do you dies. believe in? I believe in consciousness. That you move. That we travel through these different forms. And we call it I because it's we have to, an eye to perceive, but it's merely consciousness. We're just playing through different forms. You know, that's such a fundamental question in life, and. Why isn't it? Why isn't the answer obvious to us? Why isn't it as why isn't it as obvious as the sun rising in the morning that there is this? Because to me, it, it just doesn't make sense that we just kind of go away. That that's my that's my reason. It doesn't make sense. But what? Why is it such? Why isn't it clearer to it, us all? It is. It is. You forgot. Okay. So, I always look at it like I I really try to maintain the spirit of when I was, you know, five years old or, or younger, because yeah. I had that, I had that connection, and I would literally, my mom would tell me about heaven, I would sit there, I'd play games, well, what happens next, and then you're in heaven, and you can do whatever you want, and then, and then what happens the next day, and the next, well, that gets boring if you can just do whatever you want, right, then yeah. heaven gets old, so we have to, well, what happens, okay, you die, and you go into blackness, and it becomes a tomb, well, that's a very bleak conception of consciousness, basically, it's like being a consciousness inside of a, a, a a nut or something like in a you know in a in a shell and you can't go anywhere it's just pitch black but if you're conscious what a horrible conception so consciousness is always birthing something new so it's not heaven where it's you can do whatever you want because that gets old yeah. and it's not consciousness which is ab which is nothingness and blackness because that's not experience that's nothing fun or experiential or exploratory so to me it's just we are oh. in this journey of consciousness taking in these different forms to explore and experience and try and get burned and fall in love, and all these things that it's like, well, that's I, what the universe I, wants. It wants one, to experience. The closest area of thought that I believe in, or that I can like get, it's called the transcendental, men, transcendental era back in the 19th century. Mm. Thoreau was part of it. Emerson was part of it. Mm -hmm. One of their ideas was that the answers layer all around us in nature. We just have to find them. And the answer to this in nature is not one that maintains uh, the integrity of Sean Stone or Greg Stone after death it may what the answer is the tree dies the leaves fall to the ground they decay then they grow up into a new tree but that old tree is gone forever and that's the other alternative i mean i think the and that's the one that's scary for people is this sense of who we are you know this thing that you feel and i know there's a there's studies about everybody feels it right about here it's kind, of, it's kind of where you feel yourself yeah, the is pineal gland uh, and we want that somehow to be there <laughs> after the everything else stops. And can you be both the drop of water and the ocean? Yeah. Can you be the Can you be the wave and the drop? And do you have any sense of past lives? Oh yeah. Yeah. But different worlds. I mean, I remember different worlds better than I remember this world. But I do feel things. I mean, look. I think I believe everything that we're interested in life leads us to the past and to the future. There's only a oneness, right? So it's like we're experience, we're a sliver of consciousness experiencing this timeline. It doesn't mean that our consciousness isn't connected intimately. In fact, we're 
probably simultaneously experiencing those other times. So they're all there still. But yeah. we're, we're, we're here for a reason to experience and explore this. And as we heal and as we work through this timeline, we're also affecting those other timelines. You know, when I went to the Goddard Space Flight Center, I mentioned a minute ago, I, was give, I gave a talk and I ended up having a tour of all the labs and I went to the uh, uh, Deep Space Galaxy Lab and I got to speak with these guys offline. And I found this guy and I said, listen, we're offline. I'm not going to quote you. I'm not going to tell anybody, but I just want to know. What do you think dark energy is? And he says, we don't know what it is. I said, I know we don't know, but what do you think? What is it that when you wake up in the middle of the night you think it is? And I said, I'm not, I promise I'm not going to quote you. I just want to know what. He says, well, Greg, I think maybe there's an infinite number of universes and that as one universe passes by or through our, the universe that we're in, the dark matter is an expression of that passing. Yeah. It's like not one, it's not the other. And that would account for an infinite number of everything. And I'm, and I'm talking about hardcore academic PhD guys. Absolutely. You know, this is the Einstein world. Einstein yeah. believed in this kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, he, he said anybody's a fool that doesn't believe there isn't some, some design to the universe mm -hmm. once you look at it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm with you there. So uh, thank you for being on the show. I, you, I, you always get me going, Sean. And... You're one of my regulars, and I've invited you just prior to this to join me uh, in my new organization, Pole to Pole Conservation, which is primarily from my old school. We got to save the ocean through practical measures because we're destroying it, and if we don't have a healthy ocean, we're not going to have a healthy world. But I also like to think like this and have these broad conversations. Love to have you be a fellow of the of the uh, organization. Um, thank you so much, and I look forward to our next episode. You're one of my regulars, and always great to see you, buddy. Appreciate it, Greg. Okay, thank you, everybody. Bye from the CS Many Voices. <laughs>